Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome back to Candidate Confessional. I'm Sam Stein. And I'm Jason Cherkis, and this, dear listener, is our last episode of the season. I know. You heard it right. Jason and I, we're taking a break. Not from each other, from the show for a little bit, but it'll be temporary. We'll be back with more Tales of Campaign Woe very shortly, I promise you this. So, for our last episode, we saved the best, the most heart-wrenching election loss of them all. I'm talking about Bush v. Gore. Everyone knows the consequences of the 2000 presidential election. Well, you got the Iraq War, right? You got the Bush tax cuts, maybe a little waterboarding thrown in there. You got Katrina. Oh, yeah, Katrina. Michael Moore winning an Oscar. <laughs> of course. That's a consequence. And you got the Wall Street you know, bailout and the breakdown and Depression. the financial crisis. Yeah, you got all that. All that stuff. But what's often overlooked, Sam, is that the recount exposed our system in other ways. It exposed how we vote. It exposed the faulty voting machines, ballot design, civil civil rights violations in Florida, and also just how ingrained politics are in our system, right down to how po- politics can shape our recounts. Exactly. This is the story of Florida in 2000. Now, maybe it's because we're 15 years removed from it, or because smartphones weren't around back then to capture every moment. But if you look back at the coverage, or just read one of the many books written about it, you will be floored by all the deeply consequential decisions that took place during those weeks. I mean, I don't know why no one's still angry about this. I mean, everyone should still be angry about it. You're still angry about I'm still, it. I mean, we, I read one of the books that we, that we had to read for this, and it was hard not to be, to be angry reading them. <laughs> so now no one understands that anger, or really that period in American history better than Ron Klain, who is our guest on this episode. Now, Klain was a top aide to Al Gore, and he was deputized to run the recount for the vice president. And when he got down to Tallahassee, he sort of expected that it was just going to be over pretty quickly. Funny, because that was kind of something we always thought would happen in Florida. Yeah. Was that we would find another box of ballots. And, and <laughs> it's actually, actually for people who are experts, they, they, it's almost the, the fact that no new votes ever turned up was actually shocking. But what he discovered was that he wouldn't be coming home next Saturday, as he had initially told his wife. Instead, he found himself squarely in the middle of one of the most trying, dramatic, in far-reaching political and legal dramas in our nation's history. Beyond the bluster. Behind the bunting. Past the posters. After the ads. The campaign picks up. And the motorcade moves on. What happens when the votes are counted? And democracy doesn't go your way. This is Candidate Confessional. A HuffPost podcast. I'm Sam Stunn. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. Actually, I'm Sam Stunn. And I'm Jason Cherkis. And we approve this podcast. All right, so let's start on election morning. You get a yes. phone call from Lester Hyman? Hyman, yes. Uh-huh. Thank God I pronounced it right. <laughs> and he wants to talk about butterfly ballot. Correct. And so what – remember that – I guess you remember that call. I do. So I was actually uh, – I was uh, driving to work uh, in Nashville, and I got a phone call on my cell phone from uh, Lester Hyman. Lester Hyman's a very prominent kind of uh, Washington lawyer. He'd been around a long time, been active like in Kennedy campaigns, whatnot. His daughter, Liz, had worked for me at the Justice Department, and he had just gotten a call from her. She was uh, volunteering in a polling place in Palm Beach County. And she had uh, reported that a number of people were coming out of the polling place saying the ballot was super confusing. I think I might have voted for Pat Buchanan by accident. 
I don't understand what happened. You know, it seemed like it was kind of weird the way the thing lined up, so on and so forth. She had called her dad concerned. Her dad had called, her dad then called me and I came into um, uh, the headquarters and uh, reported this into Michael Hooley, who was then running our kind of our election day boiler room operation. And that was the first I heard of the butterfly ballot in Palm Beach County. So you know uh, early on that there is a potential problem in Florida. But at what point do you know that Florida itself is going to be a problem? Well, not till much, much later. Okay. I mean, I think that, you know, um, you, we, we didn't know how close or not close the election was going to be. We knew it would be close, but didn't know how seriously close it would be. You didn't know how close or not close Florida was going to be, how many voters were affected by this. I think over the course of the day, it became clear that um, this was a bigger problem in Palm Beach County. Um, it probably affected thousands of votes. But the idea that thousands of votes would affect a presidential election seemed far-fetched to almost any human being <laughs> on the morning of Election Day 2000. Yeah. I mean, were you guys optimistic going into the election, and what were your projections for Florida? Did you guys think you guys were going to win it? Well, I think, uh, you know, oddly enough, we wound up being uh, exactly wrong, as I think the conventional wisdom on Election Day was, that we would win the Electoral College but lose <laughs> the popular vote. <laughs> and we spent a lot of Election Day you know, kind of working on talking points was one of my projects uh, to try to explain to the media why Al Gore would be president if he won the Electoral College but lost the popular vote. That was so. your job that day? To work <laughs> yeah, that's what kind of what I was working on that did most you, of the day. Did you pass those notes on to the Bush people? Did I did not pass those time? notes to the Bush people. I'm sure they, they came up with their own version of wow. it. But, but that was really, I think, uh, what we thought was probably the most likely scenario on Election Day was we'd win the so, Electoral College. Well, I think vote. we need to step back for a second because... Yeah. Most listeners might not know what role you're playing in the campaign at yeah. this point. And so, first of all, uh, explain what the role was, and then walk us through how you got to be deputized to essentially run the recount in Florida. Well, so the, uh, so just to kind of roll the tape back, in the summer of 1999, I was Vice President Gore's chief of staff in the White House and probably a senior most advisor. He hired uh, Tony Coelho to run the campaign. Uh, Tony and I clashed. And uh, I got pushed out, kind of got fired, and uh, left the campaign um, and um, uh, was busy practicing law when Tony stepped down as chair of the campaign for health reasons. Bill Daly uh, came in and took over the campaign on uh, Bill Newmy and asked if I would come back. And I wanted to come back. I, you know, I really felt bad about having to leave in the first place. But what about those cases you're working on? Well, yeah, I was working <laughs> on things. Got other people to handle my work at the law firm. And uh, joined the campaign. At the time, you know, a lot of the campaign jobs were taken, but Bill wanted to build a new rapid response operation in uh, Nashville. And so I ran uh, our rapid response operation in Nashville for, uh, for the fall. And so because I was running rapid response, uh, uh, it was, it, in the Gore campaign in Nashville was an old mortuary uh, that had been converted to a campaign headquarters, a bit of an odd choice. But there was, <laughs> there was only really one big open room. It was the former kitchen of the mortuary, and that's where we ran the rapid response operation. It was also our big meeting room. And so uh, I was in there the night of election night uh, when the powers that be gathered and tried to figure out what to do about this apparently tied election. All Al Gore needs is, uh, is Florida. All George Bush needs is Florida. Oh, that's right. It's 249, right? It's, they it's, it's down to Florida. It's, it's Gore 249, right. Bush 246 right now. Uh, I was the only person, I mean, I, I was a lawyer. Uh, Bill trusted me. And um, uh, and so he asked me to go down to Florida and try to put together. We didn't really know it was going to be a recount. We really didn't know what we were going down there to well, do. What did you think it was going to be? Well, I think we kind of thought that, um, uh, you know, most of the people who do recounts will tell you that these things – nine times out of 10 sort themselves out in the first day or two. That what happens really most often is you go back to retabulate and you find that someone dropped a zero or there are boxes that weren't counted or counties were mistabulated, and it turns out it's not close at all. So what happens nine times out of 10 is an election looks close on election night, but then a little simple investigation shows that, in fact, it wasn't close. In fact, there was an arithmetic error or something, and, and one person won by a lot or a little. And so, you know, I thought we were going down there to kind of oversee that process, to make sure we were treated fairly, to figure that out. Um, uh, but, of course... Um, I believe you told your wife you'd be back on a Saturday. But I, thought, I did. I did. I, I uh, you know, I thought I told her I would be home on Saturday. And um, uh, You didn't you know, mention it was like... 
many Five Saturday, Saturdays, yeah, later. many Saturdays later. <laughs> so uh, you know, look, no one had ever seen anything like this before. It was completely yeah. unprecedented in a presidential election, and um, and a lot of it we just made up as we went along. Well, what, when you landed in Florida, I guess you were in Tallahassee. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. What was your first move since this was sort of unprecedented or, or sort of up in the air, I guess? Well, our first move was to try to figure out what the processes and procedures that were going to be used to do the first step, which was to retabulate, to, to re-add up the totals and to see if the totals were right. And it would set the groundwork for ultimately either um, contesting the results or or some kind of other challenge if there was going to be a challenge. And so we, we kind of had to figure out what we were hearing from folks on the ground, what was going on. We sent a big team. We knew a lot of the, the – the, this dispute would turn on what happened in southeastern Florida where most of the votes were in terms of a compact area, um, where this had been this irregularity in Palm Beach County that we had heard about. Um, and so, uh, so part of it was sending teams down there. Part of it was trying to interact with uh, Catherine Harris who was the secretary of state of Florida – who had the authority to decide how to run this retabulation um, and, uh, and, and re-canvas as w- w- ultimately was our right under Florida law to have these counties re-canvassed. Uh, and so, you know, we were working on those issues at first. Did you see this as an extension of the campaign or was this something else? I think it was definitely something else. It was not an extension of the campaign. Um, and uh, and I think that was a mistake we made. So I think this is a big difference in the approach between the Gore team and the Bush team. You know, we viewed it as more of a legal thing where we were trying to ascertain what the proper count of the votes would be. The Bush folks took a more political approach. They saw it as more of, of, of a political war. And uh, that, was a, that was a big difference in the two teams. And sorry, how familiar were you with the sort of minutia of this? Like, did you even know what a chad was when you got so there? So I wasn't that familiar, but we certainly had people on the team who were eminently familiar. And when they told you what a chad was, were you like, what? what? <laughs> no, it wasn't as much like what. I think, I think the, 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 the thing we were really struggling with right from the start was um, uh, there are two separate sets of issues, if you will. One was the kind of more classically recount issues. How do you get a good count of the votes? But there were these separate sets of purely legal issues. Was there any remedy for the people who had voted uh, inadvertently for Pat Buchanan because of the misdesign of the butterfly ballot, whose ballots were accurately tabulated? It wasn't a tabulation yeah. issue. We found out also that there were hundreds, thousands of people who had been denied the right to vote wrongly, who had been misstricken from voter rolls. Was there any legal remedy for that? We found out that a bunch of ballots had been you know, thrown out in some counties. We found out that, that, that state election, state local officials had re voted votes, all these kinds of legal irregularities. And so we kind of had one team working on the counting issues, one team working on the legal remedy issues. And now, just to put a ribbon on this, though, you're down here in Tallahassee. You're 39 years old. You're, you know, thrust into now the biggest theater in politics. And then the guy you're going against is James Baker, this luminary in Republican politics, former Secretary of State and Chief of Staff. Were you nervous? Well, I I was nervous because the stakes were incredibly high. and <laughs> You don't say, huh? Yeah, and, and, and not so much, quote, unquote, me versus James Baker, because we had Warren Christopher, sure. who had been my senior partner in O'Melveny, who was overseeing the effort, and Bill Daly, who was our campaign chair. I never viewed this as like Ron Klain versus James Baker. I don't think it was. I was nervous because every day the forces were aligned to try to shut us down to end the recount. There was tremendous pressure to end the recount. But pressure from people in our own party, too. I mean, Bill Bradley went on TV and said Gore should give up. And uh, Robert Reich went on TV and said this was kind of crazy. And we had a lot of pressure from a lot of people saying, like, it's time for this to end. And our main goal was to just kind of keep it going. You know, uh, we really thought this was going to get resolved, not so much in the courts, but by the discovery of previously untabulated votes, by the discovery of ballot boxes. That's what the expert says. The expert said a day would come when something would happen and this would all clarify. Uh, there'd be votes that hadn't been counted. There'd be some county official would pop up and say, oh, we put a zero where we shouldn't have put a zero or, or whatever. And so, you know, my goal was to kind of keep us alive every day so we could be around for that, for that day. How optimistic were you that you would prevail? I was optimistic we would prevail. I, I, you know, I mean, not in a Pollyanna-ish way, 
But uh, I thought there was a lot of evidence from the start that a lot more people in Florida went to the polls on Election Day thinking they had voted for Al Gore (laughs) than thinking they had voted for George Bush. And I kind of thought, you know, that would work its way through. Um, uh, So I was, you know, I was I was pretty hopeful. And how optimistic was Gore? I mean, did you guys talk regularly? What was his? I talked to him every day, uh, many times, several, several times a day, many days. Uh, You know, I think he was cautiously optimistic, hopeful, certainly at first, um, that the the series, that somehow the series of injustices, there were pretty clear injustices, thousands of votes in Palm Beach County for Pat Buchanan, yeah. right? I mean, Pat Buchanan got more votes in one <laughs> county that was heavily Jewish than every other county in the state combined. There's no way that was right. Ari Fleischer said that was natural. That was He did the door knocking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he hustled yeah, for those. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so there was that. There were... <laughs> The people who were wrongfully excluded. There sure. were you know, all these things. When you looked at all these things, we had to just win one or two yeah, of them. Yeah, but you had a classic problem here, which I think was pervasive throughout the whole thing, which is you started it with George Bush ahead. I mean, and that sort yeah. of determines everything because, like you said, they had the upper hand. So in what ways did them entering the recount with a lead change the type of strategy that you had to bring? Well, it changed it a lot, right, because you're exactly right. I mean, they had two advantages. Uh, Sam, one was... They were ahead, and the second was they ran the state. Okay? Ah, yes, right. And so by that he means the now soon to be president's brother was the governor of Florida. Uh, yeah. So let's start there, <laughs> let's right? Start there. So, so, so that so that the the the, the nominee's brother was the pre- governor of the state of Florida. The George Bush's George W. Bush's campaign chair in the state happened to be also the Secretary of State. The State Elections Canvassing Commission, acting in its normal and usual manner has certified the results of Tuesday's election in Florida, including the presidential election. So Catherine Harris, who was supposed to be the official figuring out who had won, ran the Bush campaign in Florida. She had a particular point of view, as you might imagine. And so the the fundamental problem was this, if you want to think about strategically, right? We had to get our election day defeat reversed. They won, and that was our only path to victory. They won one of two ways, either by getting their total election day increased or simply by letting the clock run out. Like, as long as nothing happened, they won. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So you have these competing interests, right? You need to count a lot of votes or as many votes as you can because you want to overturn Bush's margin. But you need to, you know, extend the deadline as well. And so then the first strategic, real uh, complicated strategic choice that you presented is do you count, recount all the counties so you petition for that or do you go with four uh, or whatever you end up setting on four. So uh, walk us through why it was that you decided to go with four when, you know, the book says you want to get as many votes recounted. Well, because what you really want to do from a purely strategic point of view is go ahead. So the problem you're in is we, to win, had to count votes. And I, I do believe genuinely from a principled basis wanted a fair count here. The Bush people just wanted to shut the thing down. And the only way to change their view on shutting the thing down was to have the count go from us being behind to us being ahead. 
And our view always was if you could ever get us ahead, then all of a sudden the Bush people would need to have more votes counted. Their whole perspective on counting or not counting would change once they were behind. So we thought the simplest way to get to a statewide recount was to count the counties where we thought we would show irregularities. First of all, the four counties we picked were counties where there were proven irregularities on Election Day. They weren't just favorable counties for us. They were, but they weren't just that. They were also counties where there were proven irregularities on Election Day. And where we thought that counting a lot of votes there would would get Al Gore ahead and then would change the overall dynamic, would change the perception we were behind. It would change the Bush view that they wanted to stop counting. Yeah, but it came with an obvious risk, which is... I mean, it manifested itself, which is they got to accuse you of handpicking the counties. They did. No question about it. Um, uh, they did. But I also think you have to think about the opposite approach, which is if we had said, let's go count all, 90, all six, 67. 67 counties in Florida. Let's go count all 67 counties in Florida. This is what would have happened, right? Uh, they would have done what they did, which was sue to stop the counting in the four southeastern Florida counties. And they would have been fine with counting in all the heavily Republican counties. <laughs> They would have gone further and further ahead. So you'd wake up every day and we would be another 200 votes behind, further, further behind. And their argument for shutting the thing down would get louder and louder and louder. And so we would be forced to go to court to stop recounts in the Republican counties. And then they'd be saying, oh, look, see, we're suing to stop here. We're su- you're suing to stop there, so on and so forth. So I-, I don't dispute the fact that the choice we made to go for these four counties was it was a was a an ugly choice, but all the other choices at the time at least seemed to be uglier to us. And again, we really thought what would happen is we'd get these four counties counted in a couple of days, we'd take a PR hit for a couple of days, but all of a sudden then we'd be ahead and the whole dynamic would change. The other inherent tensions here is that you guys were trying as hard as you can to stop a certification because yeah. that would give it sort of a legitimacy that you didn't want in the press. But the longer you get uh, down the path of the certification, the less time you have to launch a potential appeal if you needed an appeal yeah. of the results. Um, how were you weighing the scheduling of this yeah, as so, you went forward? Yeah. Uh, well, so I should take a step back and say that these questions about the four counties, the certification, all these things are questions that go to the strategies we used in the recount. Yeah. And I'm often asked, well, should you have done it differently? Yeah. Yeah. And so my but ans- I'm not asking that. Because- well, but my answer is, my answer is, you know, we lost. So of course we should have done differently. It'd be crazy to say, yeah, if I had to do it all just again, do the same. Plan I do, I do yeah. the same thing, right? So, I, so that goes without saying. But 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 I, what I will say is, there are some facts here, and one fact is that uh, we got thousands of ballots counted during the pre-certification period, and not a single ballot counted after the end of the certification period, and. It turned out that we made a lot more progress in the pre-certification period and very little progress through the co- the next process, which is called the contest. Yeah. Um, so it, it was not clear to me that getting to the contest faster – this is a strategic matter. The arg- argument has been we should have taken the loss earlier and gotten to the contest faster – uh, since we made no progress in the contest, it's not sure, not clear to me going, making the contest go longer matter. And finally, I think this December 12th date was out there. And I think if we got into the contest faster, the contest would have just gone slower. So I think we know, need to explain the December 12th date yeah. here because, you know, the the it's written that it was sort of a strategic error uh, by your uh, uh, colleague, David Boyce, uh, to put this out there as a date where you can – reasonably expect that all the ballots would be counted. But maybe that's not how it was perceived. Yeah, no, so I think, let's be clear. So the December 12th date is a day in federal law that is the date by which a state must submit its electoral tallies to the archivist who takes the electoral tallies in the country. Uh, The date by which they must submit their tally to the archivist in order for that tally to be inside what's called a safe harbor. For that tally to get a presumptive presumption of correctness when the Congress opens the electoral tallies. So uh, there was a, a legal presumption that states would want to take care, take advantage of that safe harbor provision to protect the right to their electors being counted. And so though it's not a deadline, it never was a deadline, it had a certain force um, to uh, uh, a certain force to it. Now, what I'll say is uh, when we embraced December 12th as the date the first week, 
the criticism of us was not that we were not leaving ourselves enough time. The criticism was, are you crazy? Do you think possibly this can go to December 12th? In fact, that is exactly what Bill Bradley said when he, I, I went on TV and said December 12th is the date. And Bill Bradley went, that was, I was like, that's crazy. That's a national crisis. How can you possibly let this thing go to December 12th? Because so at that so point, forth. it's like multiple weeks away. Multiple no weeks one, away. No one thinks that this is going to even get Correct. That. And so and so we we embraced December 12th as a, as a way of kind of keeping the door open. We thought, of, you know, that, that, that seemed like very far away. Now, you know, in the end, obviously, that kind of the, that door hit us in the backside as, it, as we got closer and closer to it. So it, that date wound up being a disadvantage. The U.S. Supreme Court, uh, again, I think wrongly, but the Supreme Court said that that really was the deadline. I mean, you know, in, it, we're getting ahead here. But yeah. in the end, when the court said it's time for this to stop, that December, the fact that 12th date was sure. in federal law was one of the arguments the well, court let's, used. Let's bring it back a little bit because yeah. I guess the, the theme that – sort of is pervasive here that, that extends across all this is that there was no real way to envision not just two weeks ahead, but two days ahead. And so to plan out these things uh, with any foresight, was it seemed almost impossible. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we, we tried to plan ahead. And so what I'll say is, um, you know, as, as, I, as I said a minute ago, they had a clear and easy strategy. Don't let anything change. We actually had to get a lot of things to change. So I oversimplified this before. We had to get votes counted, so we went, we went ahead in the tally, okay? That actually wasn't enough, though, because then we had to get Catherine Harris to certify that number, which she might not have been willing to do, even if we had gone ahead. She said she wouldn't certify that number. So you had to get that done. Then uh, the Florida legislature had said at one point in time, that even if that's how it came out, they were going to use their authority to appoint electors themselves. And they, they had started that. The day the Supreme Court stopped the recount, the Florida legislature was meeting to elect electors. So we had to somehow stop that from happening. Then you had to get Catherine Harris to send a certification to the archivist or else the electors didn't count. You had to get that to happen. Then, right, so you had to get, you had, you, you had to get all of these things to happen. And so, for example, there are a lot of parts of this that have never really become that public or that I mean, in the back of these books, whatever. But, for example, we were ready to file a lawsuit under the Voting Rights Act against the Florida legislature for, um, uh, for trying to change the rules and elect the electors. We had to try to prevail under the Voting Rights Act to prevent that. We had actually, for the day the electors were supposed to meet and cast their votes – uh, the Florida State Capitol, if you're not familiar with it, the Florida State Capitol is actually a very modern building. It was built in the 1970s by Governor Ruben Askew. Uh, it sits on the same grounds as the original Florida State Capitol. And so on... You know a lot about, about Tallahassee. <laughs> yeah, I do. So, so, on the, so, so for the day is it, in is which... Is it like odd-fitting uh, architecture in the state? Your or recall is, is impressive. Yeah. Well, well, I will say uh, that the, the reason this is very recalled, it's a very tall... Very tall, skinny building, and the building in Florida is called Ruben's Rescue, uh, Ruben's Erection, because um, uh, it, it kind of looks very, you know, phallic. Um, but but on the grounds of the state capitol is the old state capitol building, and we actually rented the state capitol for the day the electors are supposed to cast the votes, and we're prepared to have our electors come to Tallahassee and meet in the old state capitol and cast their wow. votes in that state capitol and send that envelope to Washington oh to try to compete with the Bush electors. So we, we you know we had to front the, we had to fight this front on so many different fronts. They just had to freeze it and. Um, it was it was just a lot harder for us. Was there any tactics that they used that surprised you? I mean, in the book, it says here that the uh, the Bush forces at one point in Broward County accused Democrats of actually eating chads. Yeah, uh, well, there were there were there were several incidents where they ac- accused people of stealing ballots, um, you know, and that and and every time they did right that that um, that stopped all the counting. So there would be. They would say this person stole a ballot. This person hit a ballot. The election officials say, "Okay, we got to stop. No counting for the next couple hours because we got to go count all the ballots, see where they all are, bring the police in, frisk everyone, so on and so forth." So they had, as I said, an endless series of tactics to stop the vote counting, and um, and that was they they played it very well. Two questions about legal strategy. One is, did you anticipate 
what ended up being sort of the deciding issue here, which was the equal protection element of this. And secondly, uh, why didn't you guys more forcefully petition the Supreme Court when it ultimately went federally? Why didn't you more forcefully petition them to not accept the case on grounds that it was, you know, of judicial constraint, essentially? Well, I think, uh, first of all, um, we didn't really think the equal protection claim was a very strong claim at all. In fact, it uh, lower court had bounced heard it. the claim and bounced it. Yeah. The very conservative 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, one at the time one of the most conservative appellate courts in America, had rejected the claim. Um, so, uh, frankly, we didn't think this was going to be a very strong claim. The idea... Although that, it was raised, like Larry Tribe raised it, I believe, and thought it might be an issue, but not... In well, Larry Tribe had litigated this for yeah, us okay. and had beaten the Republicans yeah, so in, the, in the district yeah. court. So, I mean, he, he, we definitely knew it was a claim. We just thought it was a loser claim for yeah. them and a claim that they, in fact, did lose on until they got to the U.S. <laughs> Supreme Court. And just the hypocrisy of the idea that the, that the Republicans who took the view that mere statistical evidence of inequality could never make out a constitutional violation of inequality, we're going to win the presidency on this claim, seemed preposterous. And yet that was their argument. And more preposterously so, five justices of the Supreme Court uh, accepted that argument. Did any of their tactics just piss you off? All their tactics pissed me off. I was in a permanent state of piss-offedness for all 36 days. What was it like for you to go through day by day to sort of mentally? Was it ex- must have been exhausting. I'm wondering. Well, yeah, of course it was exhausting and very frustrating. Um, but on the other hand, I will say exhilarating in the sense that I really thought um, – I mean I had the pleasure of both working for a candidate I believed in politically and as a lawyer fighting for what I thought was justice and with you know high stakes on the line. And there's, there's, there's nothing I will ever do in my career – that will be as rewarding to me as fighting the fight we fought in the recount or obviously as disappointing as losing that yeah, fight. Yeah, but I guess the question is – because no, no one actually knows the stress, like what the stress is like to be yeah. in the center of that. So, I mean, how is it affecting you uh, on a mental and on a physical level? I gained a lot of weight. Uh, <laughs> I'm a stress eater, unfortunately. And what so is I, your go-to uh, in, in Florida? I'm trying to food scene. Yeah, it was really whatever the, they brought in for us to eat that day, and I just ate too much of it. I probably – I literally gained 30 pounds in the – uh, 36 days, so that right. tells you something That's about... That's not bad. That's uh, not bad, it's, it's a lot of weight. Um, well, I, I, heard, I heard a funny... St- well, I was asking people about this. Uh, they said Thanksgiving. Uh, the dinner at Thanksgiving was an odd one. Thanksgiving was probably the single most depressing day <laughs> of the recount for the obvious laugh reasons. Uh, <laughs> I don't mean to laugh, sorry. No, but Thanksgiving fine. is supposed to be uplifting. <laughs> yeah, no, so fine. So, But, um, but uh, first of all, uh, we lost our... In some ways, the the decisive legal defeat that day, which was um, a decision by the Florida Supreme Court not to make the various counties in southeast Florida finish their recounts and, or not to guarantee that the certification would be held open until they were finished. We've, the recounts had stopped in a couple of the counties over the holidays. They had slowed. Catherine Harris had said the deadline would be that Sunday. And we really went to the Florida Supreme Court and said, hey, issue an order, force these recounts to continue, force – them and and the Florida Supreme Court turned us down on Thanksgiving Day. That was depressing. And then, of course, you know, we were away from family, and um, uh, I never really had a Thanksgiving dinner that day. I went over and uh, connected with David Boys, who was eating at a one of, the, one of the nice restaurants in Tallahassee where they were serving kind of a Thanksgiving dinner, and I think kind of took like a piece of turkey off his plate. But that was kind of like <laughs> that was that was Thanksgiving Day in Tallahassee. Ah, uh, see, you know, Jewish people would have gone to a Chinese food restaurant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, well, there weren't a lot of great choices in Tallahassee. <laughs> there's, a good, there's a great Shoney's. They do a really good yeah, turkey yeah. turkey sandwich. There you go. Uh, and so as this went on, I mean, you mentioned the, the pressure from uh, other members of the Democratic Party early on to just call it. Uh, call it a, an election, but I'm assuming the pressure ramped up as this kept dragging. Yeah. What was the back channel conversations like? Well, I think people, um, uh, I didn't get much of the back channel because people knew I was so kind of radicalized on fighting. Uh, but I know definitely a lot of this was flowing into Bill Daly, um, uh, you know, who was hearing from the party leaders that basically Gore was embarrassing himself and looked like a sore loser. You know, you remember at the time before we knew there were such things as internet memes, there was this sore loser man (laughs) sign that was hanging around everywhere. People standing in front of the Naval Observatory chanting, get out of Cheney's house. 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 Um, And, uh, you know, certainly the, uh, 
the pressure on him to concede uh, continued to rise. Were you, were you aware of the circus, though? I mean, like the Brooks Brothers riot, for instance, and, yeah. and, and Tom DeLay calling it a judicial coup d'etat. I know you're in this mindset, and it's like you have to win this thing, you have to win this thing. Do things like that permeate when you are that focused on the past? They did permeate, and I'll say they permeated in a, in a number of ways. I mean, one, we were trying to deal with each of these things as they, as they happen. We were, you know, the Brooks Brothers riot uh, was what led to the Miami-Dade Board of Canvassing stopping the count. Because they what, got freaked. They got yeah. freaked, and that's why we went to the Florida... Just want to explain what that is. It's for, well, why don't we let Well, yeah, so, so basically what happened is a couple days before Thanksgiving, the, um, the, uh, the Miami-Dade Board of Canvassing, which was doing the counting in the, in the most populous county in southeastern Florida... Um, uh, it was it was very contentious. It was loud. It was very difficult for them to, to get the counts done. There was like people yelling and screaming after each ballot was counted, and so they decided to relocate the recount to a more private room where a handful of officials would would uh, conduct the recount, Democrats and Republicans together. Uh, but a bunch of ac- a bunch of activists, um, it turned out most of whom were actually. Um, Republican congressional staffers flown yeah. down many, to Florida. Many of them have prominent jobs in D.C. And many, right them have, many of them are prominent officials <laughs> in Washington, D.C. and certainly were in the Bush administration. Is there something you want to say? No. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, basically uh, raced against the small glass area where this county was going on, pounded on the doors, demanded to be let in, demanded that uh, the recount stop, so on and so forth. Uh, you know, law enforcement was called in. They had to kind of push these people back. And the board of canvassing kind of got spooked by it and stopped counting. And that's what we went to the Florida Supreme Court to try to get yeah. ordered, make them go back and start counting again. But the Brooks Brothers riot stopped the counting in the largest county of Florida. I mean, we need to take a step back and think about that. And basically, a bunch of people banging on glass doors shut down a lawful count of votes in the largest county in the state. And, and sorry, one last question on this, though, uh, to get to the point of your mentality here. You meant you, you called yourself radicalized to win almost. And do you sense when you're going through it, do you actually get the sense? Can you see yourself getting radicalized? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I definitely felt like um, uh, we were fighting against um, uh, unfairness and injustice, you know, on so many fronts and, uh, and, uh, very much the underdogs and, um, uh, but very much had right on our side. And I mean, I just really felt with tremendous passion. I still do today that Al Gore, uh, had more votes in Florida and, uh, and the election was, was be the election result was being reversed by these, these, uh, these practices. Why not have, um, your own protests? I know Jesse Jackson came down yeah. right after the election night and was told to leave. Yeah. And I'm wondering why why, why that was... Why so I, I think that was part ideology and part miscalculation. I think Vice President Gore uh, believed very strongly that this should be a legal process, not a political process, that that was the right way to do it, that was the appropriate way to do it. I think he believed that as a matter of philosophy. I also think there was a political calculus that he was just turned out to turned out to be wrong on, which was that if we played by the set of rules that elite opinion, uh, the New York Times editorial board, Washington Post editorial would weigh in against Bush and create a uh, a downdraft of Republicans then weighing in against Bush, and Bush would have to agree to a statewide recount. I mean, I think that is the, to the extent there was a political strategy. The political strategy was uh, take the high road, do it the right way. Get the elites to coalesce around this, put pressure on Bush, and hope that pressure uh, results in a different approach. And that obviously failed badly as a strategy. I mean, because like I mean, they were out of the White House for eight years. I don't think that they would be like, oh yeah, this you know the editorial board of the New York Times is like, you know, giving a shit. I think we should, you know. Correct. I mean, <laughs> yes, I, I I cannot dispute that uh, as a as a trenchant analysis of our failed political strategy. <laughs> The ball game really, I mean, you talked about the Miami-Dade shutting down as a really sad, like, low point for you guys. Yeah. But the ball game seemed to be that uh, when the Supreme Court stayed, the uh, yeah. Florida State Supreme Court's decision to uh, mandate a recount. So when that decision comes down, walk us through what it's like inside Gore headquarters. Yeah, so um, so what I would say is the, the, the action over Thanksgiving weekend was what made us still behind in the ninth inning. The 
actions for of the U.S. Supreme Court was the actions that actually it turns out it's the eighth inning and the game is over. <laughs> um, so so uh, you know uh, it was a Saturday morning. Uh, uh, the the night before we had prevailed in the Florida Supreme Court. Um, the Florida Supreme Court had ordered a statewide recount. We finally were counting in all 67 counties in Florida that Saturday morning. Uh, judge Terry Lewis, the local uh, trial court judge, had been assigned the case and had promulgated some rules for which this was going to happen. Uh, we were counting in all 67 counties. Uh, we would get periodic reports from our people watching the recounts. We were gaining votes. Uh, we thought we would probably be ahead by late afternoon. Um, uh, some of these cases challenging the legal basis had been heard that morning or the day before in the 11th Circuit. We got rulings that morning. We had won both cases in the 11th Circuit. It was a stunning defeat for the Bush campaign. It was a court of appeals very favorable to them. We won two key cases. So it was super happy. We were going to be, by dinner time. we were going to be ahead. Uh, we had beaten the 11th Circuit. It was all good. And then uh, uh, someone uh, came into my office and said, uh, the Supreme Court has issued a stay. And, uh, you know, you could have knocked me over with a feather. Uh, the idea that, I mean, we knew, uh, we, we, we obviously had exchanged uh, papers on, uh, on having the case heard by the Supreme Court. We knew the court was likely to grant review. We knew that was going to be a very hard thing for us to win at the Supreme Court. But the idea that the court would issue an extraordinary order to stop the counting of ballots on the theory that counting votes did irreparable harm to George W. Bush uh, was an astonishing idea. And I would have bet my house and everything else on the idea that there was no way you would get a stay out of the Supreme Court uh, on that claim. And, um, uh, and so it was stunning when we got the word. They were they were uh, asking the state Supreme Court to sort of clarify certain standards for recounting at the time, right? The, we were we were in a, a a bunch of litigation in the state Supreme Court. Well, actually, in the trial court in Judge Lewis's court over whether or not there would be a standard. Judge Lewis had said there wouldn't be a statewide standard. They then went and appealed that to the Florida Supreme Court, asked for a statewide standard on how you counted these partially uh, punctured, non-punctured, dimp- dimpled ballots, all these different things. Uh, so that was going on in the state courts. But the idea that the U.S. Supreme Court would issue an order uh, that you had to just stop counting votes, you know, that was just an idea that seemed uh, profoundly implausible. And yet, obviously, it happened. I am curious about what you thought might the standard should have been, because every county was different. And it was sort of confusing about, like, for some, it was the sunshine standard. If you could see through yeah, a hole, yeah. the light, or there was two corners missing from the chat. Yeah. What did you, th- or was it just sort of the... Uh, more of a holistic approach, just, you know, well, was I, it their intent there? You yeah, just, I mean, that, that was always my view. That's what yeah. Florida law said, right? Yeah, Florida law said exactly. that the ballot should be read by the intent of the voter standard. Uh, you know, obviously that's a vague standard, but I thought it was an acceptable standard. Uh, you know, it it, it 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 was, of course, uh, the standard under Texas law in a statute signed into law by George W. Bush when he was governor of Florida, governor of Texas. The idea that this standard was a ridiculous standard, some kind of liberal democratic standard, it was the standard of Texas law that Governor Bush had signed. So we always were very comfortable with that standard. I think if the courts had come up with some other standard, we would have fine with that too. You could have done the dimpled, you could have done the sunshine rule, you know, whatever. But, court- but this isn't a game, right? I mean, I mean, this is the thing I always try to emphasize to people. This isn't a game. People went to the polls and they voted. And if you can look at a piece of paper and from the piece of paper discern that the voter was trying to say who they preferred, that should count. So for, let's take an example, the simplest example, the clearest uh, will of the voter standards. Someone in one of these counties, we had a, several hundred ballots like this, had punched the machine, wasn't sure it had worked, and had then punched right in and had written in Al Gore. Now, that's an invalid ballot under Florida law because you voted twice, okay? But there's no question if you've dimpled Al Gore and you've written in Al Gore, that's a human being who got up on election day and wanted to vote for Al Gore. And I have no trouble saying that vote should count for Al Gore. Just to push back a little bit, I mean, what the courts were essentially begging you guys to do by the end of it was to create your own standard, to come out forcefully say, these are the standards that we want, that we want to say yeah. showed voter intent. And there was a reluctance to do that. 
I mean, I know you mentioned the Texas statute, but you know, it was only towards the end that that even seemed to be referenced. So why was there a reluctance well, to set your own standard? I'm not sure I agree that it was only towards the end. But, okay. but what I'll say is, again, we thought the standard was the standard under Florida law. And I think we were in a bit of a catch-22 because if we had come out and said, oh, no, the standard is three corners or one corner or sunshine or whatever, the Bush people would come back and said, oh, see, that rule didn't exist before Election Day. You violated the Article One provision about changing the rules after Election Day. Mm-hmm. And therefore, your standard is illegal because it violates the rule that says you have to have the rules in place on Election Day. So the thing that was clear in Florida law was intent of the voter was the test. That was the simplest and most straightforward standard for us to argue. Was there also an eye to convincing the public that you were right? Like if you went into court and said, we want we are going to be for dimpled chads, people might think that being ridiculous or the. Yeah, I think I think I think that's part of it also, Jason. I think that um, uh, any other standard would have seemed kind of arbitrary and non-principled, you know, so. Uh, well, it has to be a dimple. Why a dimple? Why not a punch? Why not a hole? Why not this? Why not that? And so the only real principled rule is if you can look at a piece of paper and discern what the voter was trying to do, that's how it should count. So you talked about uh, one very depressing day. I think you called it what? Uh, ending the baseball game in the eighth inning. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but that wasn't actually the end. Uh, you went back to the Supreme Court. Yeah. Um, and then you get the decision. I think you're having lunch with Al Gore uh, during the argument. Uh, then the argument comes down. Describe uh, those moments for us. Well, uh, I had actually come to Washington um, to uh, meet with the folks, actually, who were working on our Voting Rights Act lawsuit that never became public to try to keep the Florida legislature from appointing electors. And uh, was also then here for the argument and went over to the vice president's house after the argument, had lunch with them. We talked about strategy and all these things. Went back to Florida and... um, you know, I was hopeful that the court would let the recount continue. I was kind of always hopeful that they would let us just count the votes and then we could sort out the legal issues afterwards. Uh, went back to Florida. We waited a full day and a half down there before the Supreme Court issued its ruling uh, on the night uh, of the 11th. And, um, uh, you know, when that ruling came down, uh, this can be possible for people to imagine in today's Email and yeah, social media. Age, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's going to seem inconceivable. But in fact, when the ruling came down, no one really knew what it was. Let's go straight to the court because ABC's Jackie Judd and Jeffrey Tubin are standing by. Jackie, why don't you start? Peter, I'm actually going to turn it over to okay. Jeffrey Tubin, who is just to my left. He's the one with the decision at the moment. <laughs> I was hoping to turn it over to Jackie. Um, the, um, Take your time, Jeffrey. Um, the... Peter, if you give Jeffrey, me one minute, will. It, would let be me, let me, let it was like 75 pages and they and buried then, the and, decision. And Bush thought he lost. Yeah. Bush thought he lost. Someone went on, you know, a bunch of reporters. They were, they basically, they had runners kind of running the decisions in paper uh, from the court's clerk's office out to people doing stamps from the court. People were trying to read it on air. The, 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 the key ruling is like 12 or 13 pages in. It's kind of buried. It's kind of hard to see. Um, what I knew was uh, the court clerk called us and said basically – you know, there's a decision from the court. Uh, basically, there's three justices here, two justices here, four justices here. The court was kind of splintered a lot of the rulings. You put it together. It was kind of hard to really tell from that if we had won or lost as you looked at the lineup. It was a little bit confusing. It seemed kind of bad for us because you, you knew that that justices who we more agreed with were more in dissent. But it was still not totally clear what the ruling was going to be. And so finally, I had someone just fax us the ruling. Um and so the pages started coming over the <laughs> fax machine one at a time. Those the longest were, fax. Yeah, those of you who were too young to remember. The first page is just like a cover page. Yeah, <laughs> the first page is a cover page. Those of you too young to remember what a fax machine is. Faxes take a while. And so, you know, as it was faxed, I had Vice President go on the phone. I started reading him the decision. By page seven or eight, whatever it was. I'm feeling tense right now. It was very, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, finally we got to, and, and you know, therefore, you know, we, we conclude that uh, uh, that the you know the recount should be terminated or whatever it was, um, and that's really when it you know like really hit like a ton of bricks. What was what was Gore's reaction to that when when you read it to him? Uh, he was um, obviously uh, deflated and uh, you know um, kind of groaned. Um, uh, I I still wasn't ready to give up. You know, we're kind of looking. Radicalized. Yeah. I was kind of <laughs> looking for possible other avenues and whatnot. So we kind of kept on going through the opinion, and um, uh, as we went through it, I I reached a conclusion that there was a strategy here to keep the thing going. 
uh, that we could go back to the Florida Supreme Court one more time and try to get them to set a, st- a more definitive standard, address the Equal Protection Clause issue, um, and get them to reject the Supreme Court's holding that December 12th really was the deadline. Um, and um, uh, and so I kind of laid that out, and everyone agreed to sleep on that um, and uh, and make a decision about whether we're going to do that in the next morning. We spent all night, uh, myself and a bunch of other people, up all night writing the filings we were going to file in the, in the Florida Supreme Court to try to effectuate that strategy before the vice president called mid-morning next morning and said he had decided to... Uh, to concede. Were there other people at that point that were, you know, as you had said, radicalized? I mean, in, in the sort of Gore team. I mean, that oh, was man, one. The, Ron was the one. Were you no, the only one? Ron no, was no, the no, whole no, no. There was a, there was a cadre of people working with us in Tallahassee who stayed yeah, up yeah. all night, who wrote who wrote all the stuff, who really thought we could, who really thought oh, it was a long shot that we should continue to to fight it out. Do you think um, you should have done that? I mean, filed the, the yes. Is there a statute of limitations? <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's a little late now. I think, I think, I Could think, you under the Iraq war at this point? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I, think, I think we've lived through the consequences. And then you look back on it now... Um, Obviously, you've done a lot of these interviews. There's been a whole movie made about it on HBO. Um, is there anything you would have done differently? Well, as I alluded to before, I would do everything differently. We <laughs> lost. Like, it would be stupid to do the same thing. What about over. one thing? Is there one decision that you made that sort of lingers with you? There's no one that really stands out. I mean, I, I mean, obviously, maybe we should have filed in all 67 counties. Maybe we should have gotten to the contest sooner. Um, you know, uh, I certainly think we should have been more political. We should have fought this out more of a political thing and not just a a legal thing. Um, uh, you know, but but I mean, like I would, if we had to do it again, I would do I would do a bunch of things differently and see if it worked. Having settled that, um, there is the unchangeable reality of the five to four Supreme Court decision. So I, I guess I've come to believe over time that if five members of the Supreme Court were willing to rule for George Bush on that argument and on those facts, they were willing to rule for George Bush. And no one's really ever explained to me a strategy that doesn't end up with us in front of that same court with those famed five judges. You don't think there's one argument or different way you could have phrased it that could have netted you five votes? Well, I mean, you know, I wish I could say that I did. But, um, but uh, you know, I mean... I think those five people voted for a really horrible, horrible, horrible argument that I, I that I, I cannot explain or defend. And so, uh, you know, the idea that there's some other argument they would have not voted for, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, there was also, the, I think you alluded to earlier, which was this the disenfranchisement of, of African-American yeah. voters. Yeah. And that did not seem to be um, a big issue that you guys sort of took a legal strategy with or, or led sort of protests around or even news coverage with. Yeah, I think as a legal matter, we came to the conclusion early on that there was virtually, you know, one thing that the Constitution is pretty clear on is we have a presidential election on one day. And so the idea that you could get a second vote, a revote, was precluded. So if you're not going to revote, if someone was turned away at the polls and not allowed to even cast a vote, there was no way you were going to fix that legally. Now, I do think in retrospect, we should have made a bigger deal about it politically. politically yeah. And 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 from that, but and and I will say one of the legacies of this was the creation of provisional ballots. So now, if you go to the polls, you're not allowed to vote. You're allowed to cast a ballot and litigate its legality later. That system wasn't in place in 2000, so people literally just left without casting any preference at all. There was just no way to fix that legally, uh, in you know, to change the outcome in 2000. So how long did it take to get over all this? Maybe you're not over it. I'm not over it by not by any stretch of the imagination. Well. Tell us about what it was like the weeks after it yeah. ended. Um, you know, I mean, on, on the one hand, obviously, after being gone for uh, 36 days, it was great to come home and see my family <laughs> and see my friends and, um, and uh, uh, you know, uh, go back to normal life, I suppose. Um, but I definitely felt, uh, you know, like I had been off in a foreign place fighting a hard war and most of the people around me just didn't understand that. And um, I felt a little alienated, a little little isolated. Um, I guess I got over that over time. But the, 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 the sense of defeat of losing 
the sense of injustice of it is something I've never gotten over and probably would never will get over. Sounds like almost like post-traumatic stress to me. Well, I don't want to compare it to no, that. No, no, I mean, I, I, you know, because obviously I hear you. no one was fighting. No one was firing real bullets at us. No sure. one, was, you know, but but it, but it's certainly um, uh, I certainly relate to people who've been through that experience. And uh, it was a um, it was just, a, you know, just a horrible, horrible thing. How often do you think about it? Do you still think about it? I probably think about it. You know, several times a week still. Something will come up. I'll hear about something, some irregularity. Certainly when, you know, you hear about irregularities in the polls. Sadly, we've seen that almost every Tuesday this uh, this year. Mm-hmm. Um, it, 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 it just inflames me that we still let people be disenfranchised. We, we, we mistabulate votes. We, you know, all this, all the stuff that's, that still goes on is just um, enraging to me. Do you still keep in touch with Al Gore? I do. I talk to him from time to time, you know. Do you guys ever bring up the recount at all? <laughs> <laughs> it does come up every now and then. Um, uh, more, more obviously in the early years, yeah. um, uh, you know, when he would do – early on when he would do interviews, he would call, just kind of get refreshed on the facts. You know, someone's asking about this, what happened, what you know, so on and so forth. Uh, he and I used to have this, this interesting back and forth because he would um, – uh, sometimes he'd call me, we'd talk about things, and and he'd say, "Well, Ron, you know, I, I, I really, I really helped your career. I put you in charge of that recount." <laughs> and I would say, "You know, Mr. Vice President, um, no potential client ever called and said I need to hire that lawyer who lost the most important <laughs> case in American history. That's the guy who I really need to work on my side." So, um, you know, I, I think that um, you know, to, to his credit, um, I think to his great credit, I don't think he gets enough credit for this. Vice President Gore, uh, who could have been just unbelievably devastated by this, has gone on to build one of the most impressive civic careers of any human um, fighting for climate change and working for the causes he's worked for. He's won a, a Nobel Prize. You know, he's done amazing work um, uh, after this. So I think he deserves a lot of credit for, I don't think putting it behind him, but but finding ways to to create purpose and make the world a better place, uh, even though um, he, you know, was, um, you know, the victim of this horrible event. I spoke with George W. Bush and congratulated him on becoming the 43rd president of the United States. And I promised him that I wouldn't call him back this time. Was it tough to talk to friends? Because like you had said, you know, they hadn't been through it and were people sort of wary of bringing it up with you? Yeah, I think no one really wanted to talk about it with me. Because they were likely to get a you know two hour tirade uh, by me, and so I understand why that was not particularly attractive. But um, uh, but you know I have, I have great friends, and they they were really supportive. They were supportive of my family while I was gone. They were um, really supportive of, of my kids and my wife, and and um, and uh, you know and 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 look, I think that um, uh, people have been super supportive in the sense that. I, I guess I could have been ostracized for fighting this fight and losing, and I had a lot of people embrace me afterwards. And so, um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm grateful to that and grateful to, to the friends who rallied around me afterwards. Uh, you have talked a bit about how you sort of grew from defeat and how defeat sort of allowed you to tackle new uh, you know, tasks in a yeah. different light. Um, you know, do you sense in, in some ways that defeat was good for you? Uh, no, I mean I think <laughs> no, no, no. Defeat's horrible. Okay. I mean defeat is horrible. I mean I think you you have to take what you can from it, and there are two things you know I've 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 taken from it, which is a little more fearlessness about taking on hard fights and hard things, and and uh, and knowing that um, nothing that can happen to me is nearly as bad as what happened in Florida, um, and uh, and a sense that. Um, uh, you know, you have to fight these good fights, whether you're going to win or lose and, and, and fighting on the losing side, um, you know, is, is sometimes is the right thing to do. So, I mean, it definitely shaped and colored my experience afterwards, but, um, uh, and I'm, I certainly am less, you know, uh, prior to 2000, um, you know, mo- I had been associated with a lot of victories. I'd, I'd worked on obviously a winning campaign in 1992 and worked for the front runner in, in, in 1999. And then went through this experience where I kind of got fired. That was bad. And then got back in and we thought we were going to win. And uh, certainly uh, it was a, you know, a, a wrenching loss. And, and 
and that you know definitely widened my perspective on things. But um, uh, but you know it would've been a hell of a lot better to win than lose. That's for sure. That was Ron Klain, former top advisor to Al Gore, and more importantly, our last guest on this season of Candidate Confessional. Quick footnote here. Uh, Following the Bush v. Gore decision, a group of newspapers decided to do their own review of the ballots, and they found out that the Supreme Court, if they had ruled for Gore, he still would have lost the election. Uh, But if they had actually counted all the ballots in all of the counties in Florida, Gore may have eked out a victory. So yeah, I I just wanted to thank once again all the hard work done by our editor and Sherpa to the podcast world, Christine Canetta. Thank you so much. We're going to be taking a quick hiatus from this podcast, but don't fret. We're going to use that time to do more interviews and produce more episodes. So keep that page in iTunes and Huffington Post on your tabs, just in case, you know. And until then, dear listener, as always, happy trails. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.